This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between science and money with a sociologist who's taken a novel and insight-generating approach to the question, what happens when the money runs out? David Reinecke is a postdoc at Princeton University and the author of the recently published When Funding Fails, Planetary Exploration at NASA in an Era of Austerity, 1967 to 1976 in Social Studies of Science. The article takes a close look at what happened to the work of scientists working on NASA's Mariner 10 mission, a massive scientific endeavor after facing large cutbacks. Science and Money with David Reinecke of Princeton University, coming up next. Our discussion was recorded on April 8th, 2022. We are here with David Reinecke at, from Princeton University, my alma mater. Welcome, David. Joe, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's, it's an absolute honor. I'll say we've actually met one time before. We were at one of those like round tables put into you know, a hidden ballroom of some hotel. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. On a like ESS or ASA many, many moons ago. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, as, as you reached out to me, I was like, this name's familiar because I saw the uh, the article you wrote on neoliberalism a, a while ago. And then I was like, oh yeah, we were, we were on, we were on this round table together randomly, you know? Oh, that's a right. You know, you'll see everybody in this business if you stick mm -hmm. around long enough. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, for, for everybody else who, who, who might not know you, maybe start us off. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the sociological study of science. Yeah. So um, my background in, as an undergrad, I, I did the history of science. I thought I was going to do that. And then by chance, I, I met some sociologists, including Paul DiMaggio who's, you know, used to be at Princeton, now currently at NYU. And he put it to me thusly, so long as people are involved, you can study it sociologically. <laughs> and that, I was like, yeah, I never, I never really thought about that. And so it really just kind of opened up this entire world in which disciplinarily I wasn't being, you know, limited or, or narrowed in terms of my focus. And from there, I just went off to the races. My dissertation was slightly different from the work we're going to talk about today. It was on the deregulation of network industries in America. Mm. It was largely a kind of historical economic sociology and political economy. But I've, I've slowly transitioned over, I would say, the past couple of years to studying space scientists. So not only going into the archives, but also interviewing a bunch, a little bit of participant observation. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, nice. What's that? How, how did that work? What's uh, the participant it was, I mean, observation? It's, it's always, it's, it's awkward, right? Like there's, yeah. there's no way, if you're, not, if you're not a hard scientist and you go to a place like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, yeah. You don't really have the bona fides to, to be taken seriously. So you have to, you have to kind of, you have to be a little naive. You have to be a little awkward. You have to be a little bit of a fly on the wall. But I found actually surprisingly, because right now within the sciences, there's a lot of attention on issues of things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh -huh. So then all of a sudden I saw up as a sociologist, like, oh, please come, come, oh, come nice. talk to us. Please <laughs> talk about these issues, you know, because they're under a lot of pressure now in order to hopefully more than lip service, but try and resolve some of these ongoing issues, right? That are probably that, plaguing all the sciences. That's so, awesome because I, I would imagine it'd be more like you go to the cafeteria and you go like, hey guys, I'm a scientist too, a sociologist. And they'd be like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> right, everyone turns their back to you. Yeah. You know, it's like you're like back in high school all of a sudden. Yeah, or it's more like, of course you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that isn't that nice. Yeah. But it, it, I'll tell you, the engagement was very, very interesting because I got to tell you, I really enjoyed the papers uh, that you wrote. This this study on Mariner 10 was really interesting. And 
Well, you know what? Let's let's get into it. Maybe sure. these things are I, I these things are probably best told as like a narrative history. But mm -hmm. wait, bef maybe before we do that, let yeah. me roll back. I really like this case and this topic. It had me thinking about, you know, some of the struggles that we as faculty grapple with, you know, in an age of austerity. And it's totally mm -hmm. a great take, a different take on, you know, the si science and money and the relationship between them. And I thought it was just so genius that you do a NASA project because mm -hmm. the projects are so big that the the changes would be visible because they probably manifest across teams. It's different from like when your sociology department gets cut back and you're going to trim some stuff, but you can't see those cuts because it's just one person doing their job and you don't know if it's one person doing it or or if it's systemic. So I thought it was really, really clever. Yeah. Maybe we could start off, maybe this is best developed as a narrative story. So maybe before talking about Mariner 10, can we talk about like the moon landing and Voyager and like set, set the scene? Yeah. So I, for the past several years with myself and Jennifer Tessie, we've been studying the fiscal history of space science, the, the, the funding history of space science, and, and trying to drill down beyond just, you know, the kind of big picture politics and, you know, the, the big events to actually how money works within the space sciences. Mm -hmm. And in particular, and this came just from talking to space scientists all the time, which is this is a science that is super expensive, right? Mm -hmm. The cheapest mission nowadays within the mission class is like, it starts at like 250 to $500 million, wow. right? Yeah. That's that's the cheapest mission they can often imagine. And they, they have some kind of more radical low cost concepts and it depends from country to country, but that's generally the, the ballpark or the ordinary magnitude we're talking about. And it's one of these things that people, if you're to kind of just poll random people about how much, you know, do we spend on NASA and people will just throw out these insane ballpark figures, you know, like we're spending trillions and billions of yeah. dollars. And so it seems like it's something that we're dumping all of this money into. But then if you talk to space scientists, they all have the same complaint that, yeah, there's no money. Hmm. Money is always a problem. Man, I wish we could do this, but there's no money this year. Or maybe next year there'll be better money. Or yeah, I'm having to work all these other jobs and string these things together so I can like have somewhat of a career. And it's these kind of things where like from the outside, it's like, oh, this must be the best science, right? Like they're flying into space, every, they have all this money, everything's gold plated, right? You always see these complaints about things cost too much or what have you. But within the field, the perception is, and we can get into if it's real or it's you know reality or, or you know where, where we set the line, but there's this constant perception of continual austerity. Yeah. And that's the thing that kind of set us down our path, which is, okay, if that's the perception, well, then where does this manifest within the science, right? How do people not only perceive it and talk about it, but what does that mean for the science that they do? What does it mean for the questions that they ask? What does it do for the way in which they imagine their community and how their community might develop down the line? What does it mean for junior scholars who are trying yeah. to get a job, yeah. right? What does it mean to, to grow the field uh, if there's no assurances that there's gonna be money or resources or interest for you? Uh, in a 5, 10, 15, 20 year period. And what's very tough in the US case, and we'll come back to this again, I'm sure as we talk about this, is that the time scales to explore space are very long, yeah. right? If you're, if you're going to another planet, say you're going past the asteroid belt to the outer planets, it's gonna take you five, 10 years, maybe even just to get there, right? Yeah. And then it might take you five, 10 years or longer just to build the spacecraft to get out there. And then by the time that the data is coming back and you're starting to analyze it, the person who proposed the mission may have already retired or in some cases died, 
right? right? So they're right. thinking on these very long time scales, which is which means a lot of money automatically. But in the U.S. context, the budget is renegotiated annually because these this is federally funded, this is state funded, right? And so there's this constant mismatch and worry every year as they go through the budget cycle. Like, are is this the year that we're going to get hollowed out? Is this right. the year that they're going to ask us to cut back? As you're still trying to hit this target, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the line. And that's what happened with the case that we talked about, uh, or I talked about in the, in the article of Mariner 10, which is they're trying to plan this ambitious mission to Mercury and Venus in the midst of a massive drawdown of science support, of science support that's coming in the aftermath of the moon landing. Right. So ju just to clarify, you know, when you imagine a, a NASA project, yeah, you imagine that someone's like, well, we're just going to give you $10 billion and here it is in a bank account and everybody thinks it's rock solid. But what you're saying is these are enormous projects and you do all the work this year and maybe the money might run out next year. Maybe it might not. And so you have scientists who are always dealing in sort of a financially precarious environment. hundred percent. All right. Yeah, yeah. And you know the study of economic precarity, it's, it's now a huge buzzword in economic sociology. And everything that we've seen in say like the gig economy or the economy elsewhere has entirely been replicated. Oh, really? In the space <laughs> sciences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, the swell of postdocs and temporary, like all these things right? that are, huh. that, you know, there's, there's maybe only a few recipes that you can do in the face of austerity. And it doesn't really matter if it's in the sciences or, you know, delivering food, right? It's, it's going to be similar kinds of economic formations. Yeah, I guess yeah. so temp contracts and just just under different names with mm -hmm. fascinating. Okay, yeah. so the, the environment, so after the moon landing, I guess everybody thought they were going to be living on Mars and we'd be pouring trillions of dollars into a space program till we live on the moon and things like that. But it didn't mm -hmm. quite pan out like that. And right. uh, so tell us what happened with the Voyager. So the, the unfortunate thing for space science is that it comes of age in the 50s and 60s where there was all this enthusiasm mm. for space science. It, it might be one of the most disastrous things to happen to this field. So it comes of age in the 50s and 60s where the sky was the limit. The government at one point in 1966 spent over 5% of the federal budget on the space program. Wow. Right. So in 66, we were spending more on the space program than we were, I believe, on schools. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> more, more, more than we were on a lot of the social programs of the time, oh, wow. which, had, which had just come into being, right? And if you're forward looking and you're riding that gravy trade, you begin to make very ambitious plans. Right. And, you know, starting in the early 60s, as they're looking forward, they realize that the Apollo moon landing, right? Putting, sending and returning astronauts to the moon, you know, we're going to do that. And then what, what comes next, right? It's always what comes next. And assuming that NASA's budget was going to stay roughly the same, I don't know how it could ever stay at 5%, but assuming that it was going to be, you know, roughly in that ballpark or what have yeah. you, they begin to make very, very ambitious plans. Okay. Space stations, sending astronauts to Mars, dramatically expanding space science, you know, so not only putting space telescopes in orbit, sending and returning probes to, to places like Mars. And the mission that I talk about comes out of the failure of this one mission known as Voyager, which was this exceedingly ambitious Mars mission, in which I think everything that everyone asked for kind of got put onto that mission, okay. right? <laughs> and, and by 65, 66, 67, it's, it's quickly spiraling out of control. It starts as maybe a billion dollar mission and then your dollars. And in, by 67, there's like, it, it could be upwards of $3 billion or right. more. And that was perfectly fine when the budget was very big. 
But post-69, as Nixon enters the White House, as you know, America collectively begins to tighten the belt, as they look for places to cut, and they're like, oh, why are we spending so much on this space program, right? right? When we're trying to tackle inflation, grow social programs, we're fighting wars abroad. And so they, they begin to dramatically cut back NASA's program starting really 68, 69, and in, in, into 70. And this is the background for, for the mission that I talk about. So they begin to immediately cancel a lot of these ambitious missions. Mm-hmm. They dramatically scale back a lot of these programs. Um, for a time, they even think about canceling future moon landings, right? Like every, everything's kind of on the table as they're beginning to retrench the budget. And it's in this context that planetary scientists begin to say, well, like, well, what can we even do? Like, mm-hmm. what's, what's it even worth planning at this point? There's no assurances that there's going to be any money. And this is where Mariner 10 comes from. This moment where they're asking real questions like, can there even be a space science program moving forward if we're not going to be paid? So so austerity hits science. You know, there, there's something I'd like to interject into the story here, mm-hmm. like to the thing. This is usually the point in the story where like people start focusing their ire on cutting scientific funding, right? And they're like, yeah. well, that, that, but like I, I saw the value of the story that's to come in how people practically manage the situation. And, you know, I think in general, people can lock on to the idea that science, it's sad when science is cut, but sometimes science does need to be cut. Like 5% of the budget on space exploration is quite a bit if you're like hungry and with like a, you know, food programs or medical programs. So also that, and like, if we never cut university departments, we probably still have like a phrenology department. So yeah, yeah. there's, there's a lot of worries at the time. Um, There's these classic cases or classic books what's his name? DeSola Price writes this book on big science, like in the 60s. Alvin Weinberg, who was a very famous physicist. And they had these hilarious graphs, you know, because they're writing at a time in which R&D funding is like doubling every yeah. two or three years. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, if you just extrapolate that forward by like 1978, like all of the budget will be spent on science. And then like the entire workforce will have to be scientists, like at the rate that like we're growing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like they're, they're, they're real, there's real concerns in this in this period, and as much as I think everyone can get behind space exploration and it's cool and you yeah. know rockets are awesome, like all these things, we don't have to preach into the choir. Like you don't have to tell anyone that NASA is cool, but no, there's real priorities that are that have to be met with a finite budget in this period that forces this very hard look about what can we do, what's possible, how should we move forward, and it's in that context that you see Mariner 10 move forward as a way to kind of defensively do space science, but for on the cheap. Yeah. So let's talk about Mariner 10 then. Yeah. Uh, what was it? What, how did this project come into being, uh, you know, and, and what was remarkable about it? So, so Mariner 10 came, it, it was in the last influential series of Mariner probes. These are robotic probes sent to the inner planets, right? So Venus and then Mars, and then eventually Mercury. It was the first effort to see if it was even feasible or possible to send robotic probes to these other planets to kind of either fly by them or orbit around them or, or, or what have you. And it wasn't even supposed to happen, right? So they, they weren't even planning on a 10th Mariner series. But as the budget gets cut and they're looking for things that they can do for not a lot of money, they find this mission concept. It's almost kind of like, a, are you familiar with that? The garbage can model of organization? Yeah, yeah, totally. Explain it yeah, though, yeah. explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's uh, that's what Jim March and Olsen or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, so like <laughs> that's it's this idea of organizations where cause and effect or like means and ends are not like connected. Pr- problems and, and solutions, yeah. Yeah, problems and solutions, exactly. Yeah. And what the organization does 
is basically they just root around in the garbage can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for both problems and solutions, right? And then and then put them match together. them up, yeah, and then match them up. And that's <laughs> basically it's it it's it's actually happening at the same time as Mariner Tint. So maybe it's a very oh, like, that's funny cynical look at bureaucracy. Yeah, what so happened. it'd be like there's a whole basket of problems, and you're like, oh, Bill from web programming isn't working, so maybe mm. we can solve like this department's problem with a new website. Exactly. And then you just you're like, all right, now that's done. What's the next one? Exactly. So, so in this context, they have a you know dramatically scaled back budget. I mean, we're talking in, in the span of three, four, five years, um, cuts upwards of 60, 70, 80 percent in their budget, right? Wow. Yeah. And so they're like, well, what's even possible? And then they find this mission concept to, to Venus and Mercury, and they realize that it can be done for on the cheap if it uses this gravity assist. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the special trajectory that if they launch it at a particular time and it can catch the gravity of a certain planet, they can use that gravity to slingshot to an, another destination. Mm-hmm. In this case, they're going to move on to they're using Venus to slingshot to Mercury. But the thing is, is that that relies on planetary conjunctions, right? So like the planets are all re- revolving around the sun. So you only get a handful of these opportunities in some cases, like once a century or something like that. Oh, okay. So the the later Voyager outer planet probes, you know, that produces awesome pictures of of Saturn and Jupiter and stuff like that, yeah. that used a gravity assist trajectory that last existed at that time. I think in the time of Thomas Jefferson. So oh, like wow. it only comes around like every 176 <laughs> years. And so they find they find this. It's like okay, we can actually fly this super cheap mission to Venus and Mercury, but we have to start it now. Okay. Right. If we if we do not do it now then it gets much more expensive. And so it won't be possible. And so they, they begin to, to make preparations to put this mission, this escape, we're going to move forward. We're going to select this mission. And this is going to be the next big planetary mission in this moment of austerity. I, I have, I have a question mm-hmm. that whole slingshotting around the planet. Was yeah. that something that was theoretical, but hadn't been tested, but they were like, well, let's give it a shot. Cause we can't afford to have a good Good rock, finance a good rocket that would just take us directly there. Is that basically what happened? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, like at, when they proposed it, they had never done anything like this. Huh. So it was it was going to be a, a technical demonstration of, of whether or not this was possible. Nice. Thankfully for celestial bodies and physics like that, like the physics is not too too complicated, mm-hmm. right? They actually ended up learning a lot about what makes it possible to do that, and they realized there's all these kinds of things they didn't account for once they tried to do it. Like the, I believe the force of the sun. Is, is actually got a huge factor in, in like wow. effects, these kinds of things. So like they were kind of learning by doing a, another, another Jim March thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> in this case. So that's awesome. No, that's yeah. okay. So they devise now, but, but you, you mentioned in the paper that uh, Mercury was not like considered a high priority. Yes. Planet to observe at the time. Yeah. No, no, no. This, this is actually something if, if we can detour for a second, because I've been recently studying this. So, one of the fascinating things about the space sciences, and I think this is actually something that will come to many sciences and something that they've only done because of austerity is they have this thing through the National Academies of Science called the Decadal Survey, hmm. where they get a bunch of scientists together and they force them to come up with the consensus for what they wanna ask for for the next 10 years. All right. So there's a, there's a lot of strategic planning so they can try and build some community agreement before they go to funders and say, this is what we want. Right? Because if there's a lot of people with a lot of different things, the funder either has to pick and choose or no one's going to get what they want. Right. Right. So one of the important actors in this story are all these elite boards of, of scientists that are trying to imagine, okay, what are we going to prioritize 
what are we going to put all of our eggs into these particular baskets moving forward? Because there's more ideas than we can fund, right? Mm. And that was true even when we had all this funding. And it's triply true now that we have no money. The funny thing about this mission was that no one did want to go to Mercury at all. Mercury is super close to the sun. It's very hard to image with ground-based telescopes. We didn't know very much about Mercury at all. We, we, there was some radar astronomy that had revealed something interesting. But if you were to ask scientists, you know, like, hey, you know, where do you want to go? Pretty much no one would say Mercury. Right. But then once money runs out and they realize, oh, we can go there for cheap. You see this complete about face. You're like, oh, no, actually, Mercury is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and they come up with this. I love this. They come up with this idea of comparative planetology, you know, which is to say, like, <laughs> we can learn a lot about, you know, other planets by looking at other planets. Yeah. And until we can go to the places we want to, well, why not go to Mercury and see what it's all about? You know, yeah. that, that, may, that may tell us something interesting through comparison. Yeah, right. so it so sounds you like this, you see this complete about face in this yeah. like a year or two. Yeah. It's like re rehabilitating the business model for the venture capitalists when you don't get your first round of funding. Yeah. I guess it's, it's sort of the same thing, I guess. You know, they're responsible for people. They want to advance the science somehow and they're trying to sell it. Is that what it amounts to? Like, yeah. So they're, they're trying to sell it, but then they're also mindful too. And this is something that we're trying to write up in the book is that there's a vast, at this point, complex, complex network of research institutions, laboratories, aerospace contractors, graduate students. A lot of the funding in space science is tied up in these big projects and programs, hmm. right? So if these projects and programs aren't flying, people aren't getting paid, science isn't getting done. It's not like how it is often say in cancer research or NIH where like they have these big block grants that kind of finance, you know, large institutions or whatever. Yeah, like regular um, operations. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In NASA world, it's very mission oriented or project oriented. Right. So if these projects aren't getting off the ground, there's not a lot of kind of what they would call supporting research and technology grants on the side to kind of keep this entire ecosystem afloat. So from that perspective, they're just like, we just need to fly something. We don't right. really care right. what it is, but we, we need something or we're going to lose these capabilities. I think people rightfully will move on to other things or, right. or leave, leave the field. So if, if we're not putting something in the pipeline right now, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the line, uh, we're really going to regret it. But it's like, I mean, you, there's two ways to look at it. One, you can look at it just like a naked self-interest play. But then the other way to think about it is, and this came through in your story, they really cared about space exploration and the endeavor of space science. And maybe one way you want to create projects is, like you say, to just keep the capacities alive, to keep the community together so that there yes. are always people working on it. Yeah, yeah. No, no. If, if I'm representing this as some kind of like, like cynical cash grab or something, I, I do want to be mindful of that. I've, everyone I've talked to in this field, clearly super passionate about it. And you have to be in order to accept yeah. all the indignities of austerity yeah. and like the, the uncertainty <laughs> and the precarity and the fact that, you know, you're, you're staying up till like, you know, 1 a.m. on a Sunday or Saturday, like, you know, like constantly working, answering, like all the things that we all know as, as academics, right? Like yeah. if we didn't love this, like you got, brother, you got to choose another field. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it, it's much more just this kind of creativity and constraints or just seeing, well, we've been dealt a, a bad hand here. What can we do moving forward? Right. And in, in order to make this, this work. And what I find super interesting about it is I think a lot of stories maybe would stop there, which is to say like, okay, they find this cheap mission idea and it gets funded and then like the rest is gravy. Yeah. But as I show, and this, this took like a lot of archival work and like talking to people and 
getting very deep into like the specifics of the mission is that the fact it was born in this period of austerity begins to like work its way into every aspect huh. of the mission, right? So like the uh, this austerity mindset, it's it's not just like, oh, we get funded and everything's good. Like this austerity mindset works its way into how the mission's designed, who gets selected to join the mission, how the spacecraft is put together, the problems that a lot of the spacecrafts encounter. It's like once it's like, once it's out there, gloried outer space. My favorite example of that is it's very common when the mission's coming together to like bring the top scientists and meetings or parties or, or whatever. So everyone can get to know each other. And they didn't have many of those on this mission. Mm-hmm. And the handful of times when they did meet, it was a, um, there was no free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made him mad. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I got this invitation or I found this in the archives, which is, you know, like make sure to bring cash because we're not covering <laughs> drinks on this mission. It's like, it's like, wow. And, and they said, yeah, they said like in typical MVM, you know, Venus, uh, Mariner, Venus, Mercury fashion, uh, this will be a, you know, cash only bar. Cash bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so let's let's talk. How did it pan out? So there. Wait, wait. Well, let's get into this. So, mm-hmm. what's interesting to me in that is you're telling me the whole field began to develop sort of a joint cognizance of the operational conditions that the whole field was operating in. Everybody developed an austerity-minded mindset. How did that concretely manifest when people were making decisions about their contribution to the the Mariner project? Yeah, yeah. And so when I, when I say the community, I, I think. More concretely, I mean within the the project itself, right? Which is okay. you know several hundred scientists and, and engineers and uh, technical support staff. So they're as they're going through the process of, of putting this mission together, the organization that ends up building and flying the mission, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a part of Caltech out in Pasadena. Huh. There's a lot of things that are going on, and you can read the paper if you're interested. This is to the audience. But they decide as a kind of gamble in order to win support and win the, the mission and have NASA fully funded, they commit themselves to a fixed cost for the mission, which had never been done before. The typical way in which these missions often were funded and still continue to be funded in certain cases is a kind of cost plus contract, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, okay, we're going to say this is how much it's going to cost plus profit, plus all these other things. And then if the budget goes over, it goes over, you know, like we're doing amazing, important science, like right. it's tough. You try and do this and see if you can do any better. But on Mariner 10, they made this upfront commitment to say, basically, we're not going to go over $100 million. Yeah. It was like um, the space the space engineering equivalent of Ikea. Mm-hmm. When Ikea is like, we're going to have a bed set that's $99. Now let's work backwards. Yeah, yeah. And like the bed might be very small. Yeah. There might, there might be like no material in it. They're like, it's like a little bit of veneer, or like yeah. know, whatever, whatever it costs for 99 bucks. But you yeah. can sleep in it. Yes, it, yeah. Yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah. For how long? I think it's another question. Right. And importantly, and it's, it's kind of wild because they're doing it in this period of, of high inflation, no adjustments for inflation. No, you know, basically like they, they sign it and a historian at the time remarked it was, it was like a letter signed in blood that no one, that no one had ever done this before. It, it, was, it was very wild for them to imagine committing up front to something, especially because they hadn't built anything yet. Right. right. And so they start with this cost target in mind, and then exactly as you're saying, work backwards from that. Hmm. Doing all the things, some, some things that you might imagine and some things that were, were quite innovative. One thing was, okay, why build things new, which was pretty standard in a lot of missions. Why don't we just go into the basement and see what we've already built? Yeah. Right? And so they, they go looking for all the past Mariner missions and things. 
okay, oh, we can borrow the subsystem from this. And, oh, I think this camera might work from here. You know, take, taking all the parts they can. Yeah. They start holding way less meetings. They start mm-hmm. requiring way less in terms of paperwork, which, you know, nowadays we send emails, we communicate, it's very easy. But if you think back in the 60s and 70s, reducing paperwork meant reducing typists, mm-hmm. reducing printing budgets. There's, there's like a lot of material things yeah. that like we're, we're very fortunate that we don't have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. That were, that were very real costs on, on these kinds of missions. So, Although, so although like, those were also jobs that were lost, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah it's yeah. always a plus minus. But yeah, go on, go on. No, no, no. The other thing was uh, just trying to have as small a team as possible. And this is something that I've, I've gradually learned and why I think the sociology, why I think sociology and economic sociology is completely relevant to the study of science and money. If you look at where most of the money goes in these big science projects, it's not going to like sophisticated beryllium coated mirrors and nuclear power sources or, you know, tunnels underneath the Swiss mountains. Most of the cost then and now goes to people and yeah. people who are highly trained. So they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It really is industrial policy of a like a kind of hidden industrial policy. Yeah. And that has this kind of it has it has it has a kind of frankly sad implication for a lot of these missions, which is if you want to keep the mission cheap, you just have to cut people out yeah. as much as you possibly can. You have to keep the teams as small as possible. You don't want a lot of redundancy. It it has this stunning implication, which is if you want to keep the mission cheap, you just have to make it as small as possible in terms of people, which means cutting out as many people as possible, yeah. keeping the teams very, very small, or relying more on graduate student labor, right. for example. <laughs> or, yeah, or bad work conditions. Yeah. 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 Like, we're, we're like right back to economic precarity and things like that. Yeah. So they, they really go out of their way to, to reinforce this austerity mindset. They hold cost seminars where the goal is, as they say, personal indoctrination into <laughs> the, the cost orientation of the mission. They, you know, almost like a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of thing. They put these signs up, which is like, do only what is essential. Yeah. <laughs> right. That these constant reminders to try and find a- economy where, wherever is possible. They, they get a lot of scientists on the mission who have, uh, have a lot of direct experience with past missions. Mm-hmm. And they tell them, do only what you've done before. We don't want you proposing anything new or radical or wild. Just right. come with what you've, you know, whatever you're good at and, please, please, please do not try and upgrade the science yeah. or, or ask or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so you see, you see a lot of, I mean, it's, it's frankly, um, they call it turning brain power into rocket power, but we call it kind of just like entrepreneurial, yeah, like innovation. institutional entrepreneur and, and yeah. innovation, right? Trying, trying as hard as they possibly can to find all these different ways to shave off a dollar here or there. Yeah. And, and it, it kind of magically, it works, right? It, like it, it does, it does end up being built. It's delivered on time. It's delivered a little bit under budget. Mm-hmm. It, it does fly. It does complete its mission successfully. It returns the first photographs we have of Venus. You can still see them today. It returned the first images of one side of Mercury, mm-hmm. which were the only images we had of Mercury until NASA sent Messenger in, in 2011, right? So that was, it was like the first and last time we went there for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. But as, as I detail in the paper, the spacecraft almost from the get-go was janky, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't particularly work very well. It was prone to malfunctions. It required the constant intervention and babying by teams on the ground, sometimes you know, 24-7 to have it limp through yeah. its entire mission. And there and there were several moments where they, they were convinced that the mission was done or, or it was over. And it actually, I mean, it, it performed admirably, but it just required just 
constant care and managing. Yeah. Okay, let me let me sort of unparcel this because this is a part of the paper that like my mind sat on and I, I enjoyed contemplating it. So NASA started to engage in austerity and that austerity on one hand pushed scientists to innovate and there were benefits, but also it did erode quality and had costs. And I thought we, I'd like to just, could you treat, treat one, them each at a time? Like what were the good things that ended up happening from the trials of dealing with austerity? Like, for example, you mentioned that they, they were sort of pushed to test this theory that you could use a planet's gravitational field to propel a craft. And, mm-hmm. and we, you, and you, we still use it. Apparently you're saying we still yes. use that method. Were there other innovations like yeah, that? Yeah. So al- along that line, it uses this gravity assisted trajectory, right. To go to Mercury. And then this Italian mathematician, Beppe Colombo, mm-hmm. who Europe has an upcoming mission to Mercury, who's going to be named after this guy. He realizes that the orbit of the spacecraft around the sun is roughly two times the orbit of Mercury. So if they're to do yet another gravity-assisted trajectory around Mercury, they could come back to Mercury a second or maybe even third time. Oh, uh, okay. And this guy just shows up with these calculations, like, hey, like, what about this? And they're like, hey, you're right, right? So, and this is this is a great example of turning brain power into rocket power, which is right. just like using some simple math to say, like, well, it's actually possible to actually extract even more, like ring even more from this mission without having to kind of significantly upgrade the craft or, or reimagine the mission, right? Uh, if we just a slight, you know, correction maneuver at a certain point, and we can get another pass to collect more data. It's in terms of science per dollar, and this is something that people on the mission would love to brag about for, for decades to come. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most productive missions ever, right? It's exploring, in this case, we'd been to Venus previously, but not with the, the instruments that were on board. And we'd never been to Mercury. So it's it's making profound new discoveries of a place that we'd never been to before, right? right. It, I mean, it dramatically expanded both Venus and Mercury science in one fell swoop, just mm-hmm. from a very quick flyby. It proved that you could deliver these missions on a fixed cost, mm-hmm. right? Now, how contrived that was and, and where they had to make shortcuts. And one of the things they argue and this might be more in the cost rather than the benefit, is there probably were all kinds of shadow budgets or kind of hidden agreements to kind of say like, well, we did deliver it as promised at the dollar value, but the total cost, if you were to put everything into it, probably went over that. Right, right. Extent. Also like, like so- solar wind uh, is my understanding. It was also- Yeah, yeah. They improvised solar sailing as, as a way to kind of continue because they ended up venting a bunch of gas accidentally, for uh-huh. this, you know, trajectory correction maneuver. So, yeah, so- I mean, it was, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable mission that it, it flew, period. Right. Yeah. So I think that I think just in just the demonstration of that it's possible to do this, it really sets the kind of imprimatur moving forward for a lot of similarly sized missions. Right. So yeah. on, on one hand, you can look at it and you can say, you know, there was sort of what is it? My necessity is the mother of invention or something yeah. along those lines. And, mm-hmm. and, and we discovered things. Sounds like they borrowed from old projects though. It's like one of those things where you might be able to pull it off once in a while, but soon there's no more equipment in the basement or, or, yeah, or yeah. something like that. But on the other end, you point out that like there, there were problems. It, it's not all just you cut it and everything's roses. So what were the sort of the drawbacks? So I think the, the language I would use here in the 90s, it got really popular for NASA again to try and 
fly these small missions, right? At, through the 70s and 80s, the mission sizes had grown enormous. They'd grown to like what some were calling Battlestar Galactica projects, <laughs> right? Just like enormous behemoths <laughs> that took like decades for them to, to realize, yeah. right? You could think of things like the Hubble Space Telescope as kind of a classic example of that. Mm. And so in the 90s, there was this idea, this philosophy called faster, better, cheaper, right? We can fly these faster, better, cheaper missions. And if you talk to aerospace engineers, they'll tell you, you can't have all three, right? right? You got you to pick two at, at best. Yeah. You can definitely have it faster, right? That's, that's yeah. totally possible. Like you put more people on it, you, you figure out the systems engineering, you parcel out the jobs or subcontract and whatever, that, that can totally be done. It can certainly be cheaper, especially if you're creating a cost cap on the mission. If you know you sign a contract that says it can't go above this this level, or mm-hmm. we cut your funding or we cancel it, then people will find ways to make it possible. But whether it's better, I think is the that's the really ambitious thing. And what you saw after this mission was there was a recognition like, yeah, we can do these things faster and cheaper. But often by accepting implicitly, if not explicitly, more risk baked right. into the mission, right? So like, okay, we, we rushed this out and it was not the best thing we've ever done. We probably shouldn't expect this to be this super high re- like reliability, super spacecraft, right. right? Like the fact that it even did anything at all and returned some data is acceptable. Like right? it, panned out, it panned out well, but it could have just made a beeline into the face of Venus and that would have been yeah. it. And that's precisely what happened to several of those faster, better, cheaper missions. So like oh, interesting. <laughs> there were two Mars Polar Lander and Mars Climate Orbiter. And th- those are kind of famous because like in one instance, a person mixed up, you know, like feet for meters or something like oh, that. No. <laughs> yeah. And then and that that actually did go like right into <laughs> the Martian surface. And then another one, there was a bit of programming that it was like when to shut off the rockets as it was descending to the surface of Mars or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. And it was, it had some like gyroscope on board. So like when it had some kind of sufficient rumble, like, okay, okay, that's the touchdown and you can turn off the engines, but then there was a rumble in the engine. So the engine turned off like a hundred meters above the- Oh, it just went from plummeting <laughs> to, the <ground. laughs> to the ground. And that's something they only found out later on, like as they're doing these kind of very detailed- Right. In like, you know, post-mission autopsies. And it kind of pushed NASA away from this kind of faster, better, cheaper concept. Right. So I, I think that's one of the bigger costs. The other thing, and this is something that, continues to be a huge issue, you talk to anybody in this industry, is that there's just a lot of free labor expected mm-hmm. on these cost cap missions. So if you're on one of these like big flagship, you know, sky's the limit. So for instance, very recently, there was this huge space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. It's already cost like $10 billion. It's taken them 15 years to build it. The entire astrophysics and astronomy community is like betting on this one mission. Yeah. It, it finally got out to where it is. It opened. Everything seems to be fine. On that, there's not a lot of pressure necessarily to, to manage costs, or there has been some, but not like on Mariner 10. But on these smaller cost cap missions, where there is a lot of pressure to manage money, you see a lot of what they call donation of labor, right? Yeah. And that's, that's very, very common. People, they've estimated underreporting labor costs 20, 30, 40% sometimes. Yeah. You know, I mean, in order to get the numbers to fit. Not and unlike just, a lot of, sorry, go on. Yeah. Oh, and uh, I mean, and we all know that as academics, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the system doesn't work if there's not at least some significant free labor baked into yeah. these things, right? Yeah. We're not being paid for every hour that we're grading or coming up with lesson plans or any of this kind of stuff. Like, it's, yeah. You know, though, on the other hand, I was reading your paper and I was thinking about, you know, right now I'm studying content creators mm-hmm. and 
it's it's funny the more i talk to people the more i realize how not economically motivated people are at their job even like people do stuff because they believe in it or they love it or they have a real passion for it and i'd imagine that was the same thing with the space researchers it's certainly what i see in yes. academia and you see it you see it also with creators they're like yeah i'm probably poor but I like this, or I believe in this, or I want to yes. talk about this topic. So it's interesting, just the limits of like thinking of people's work as an economic transaction. That's, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point. I think the thing that makes it tough is um, we know intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic would be compensation, right? So intrinsic would be like, you like, like it, or yeah. you're part of it. We know that's like oodles and oodles stronger in terms of getting people to perform, be satisfied with their job. There's like, there's a really massive right organizational psychology literature on this the problem is is that we just we can't figure out who's intrinsically motivated or not right it's very it's very difficult to kind of screen people and say like oh this person obviously like would do it for free if they could yeah and there's a lot of self-selection into these kinds of positions right where if you've made it this far you clearly you're in yeah yeah no no one has to convince you to do this no one has to convince you to send that email at at 1 a.m you're you're doing it because you know, you can't imagine anything else in certain instances. I guess the problem is, is if, if managers recognize this characteristic in their workforce and they try to take advantage of it, then you have like that, that U, UCLA zero compensation uh, position yeah. and things like that. So, so, they, we, we, we still don't know, right? Like why, why that job went out or who that was for or. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm guessing because we kind of engage in this sometimes is like you run into somebody who is a really successful business person mm-hmm. who has like sociology relevant skills, like a, a marketing researcher or something who just wants to give back to the kids. Yeah. And, you know, so you do. But get not only give back to the kids, also put like on their resume, like I've taught at the following places. Yeah. Well, sometimes yeah. you get that too. Yeah. 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 A lot of adjuncts, I believe, like are. There are are two types of adjunct populations that I sense. One is people who are doing this as their primary economic activity. And then there's people who are purchasing this as they don't even care about the money. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're doing fine. It's more like they they either want to say they're part of a faculty or they just kind of want to be involved. Like they just like being at universities and stuff. Yeah. No. And like, and make no mistake, like the overhead at your modern research university is amazing, right? Like library access, access to all kinds of materials and fringe benefits like there is there's a lot there and you you see that anytime if you've ever gotten like a nsf grant or whatever like they have some federally negotiated overhead rate the last nsf that i got i think it's like 60 percent went automatically to princeton yeah yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) like what is that 60 percent going to like like i guess not only just keeping the lights on but yeah paying for a a lot of different things you know I was thinking about this the other day. It's like the university is like the world's best content mill. That's all it is. You know, you're making stuff and they need a piece of it. Like that's, yeah, yeah. That's what keeps the system afloat. So wait, let's, 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 in the grand scheme of things, this Mariner story, yes. it, what did it teach you? Like, how did it change your views on science and the role of science and money? Like what, what shifted for you through this whole experience? There's, there's a lot that shifted in the process of, of following this story. So I think there's a, there's a couple of things that pop out. So one is, and this may just be a convention of this literature or how people talk about it. We often see money and science as separate. And mm-hmm. that kind of makes sense because scientists do science 
you know, there's this vast literature that scientists don't care about money. They care about things like discovering or citations or, you know, the, the, as Thomas or not Thomas Burton, Robert, Robert Burton said, right. The greatest honor you can have as a scientist is like they name the law after you. Right? Yeah. Like the, the eponym. Like yeah. That's somehow that's somehow some consolation prize for just like years of just not being paid and like yeah. you know, working in a basement. Like, hey, it's, it's my law, like Reinecke's yeah. law, like, you know, like people will remember me. And then, you know, the money is done by politicians and administrators and stuff, some of whom may be scientists, but often not. They can just be like elected officials. And so in that sense, and this is a classic thing you see all the time in economic sociology, uh, you see money and science as these kind of separate spheres, right, as Viviana Zelitzer would say. And it's very easy to buy into that because Congress appropriates the money, NASA pays the money out, and then scientists do their science. And, you know, never the twain shall meet, right? It's a good thing to have. And once you get funded, you know, it's this kind of either or event that's just like, okay, great, we got funded or we didn't get funded and just move forward from there. But what you see in this mission is that money and science are like never far apart. They're like, yeah. oh, they're, they're always interconnected or, you know, creating friction or like whatever mixed metaphor you want to use. Yeah. And uh, fiscal realities for shaping scientific realities and vice versa at all times throughout this mission. And to what extent does that describe normal scientific practice? Well, I think that's an empirical question, yeah. but this kind of limited or austerity mindset has come to a lot of different sciences. So I wouldn't be surprised if these kinds of practices or these kinds of worries or, man, we just have to find some kind of science that we can do under this particular constraint. Yeah. Probably does describe a lot of what it means to do science nowadays, um, even in fields that are, at least on its face, seem like they're well-funded. Yeah. Right? It's complicated, you know. I I also remember having understanding the the role of money uh, when I started to serve on the executive, you know, on the executive team in my department, and I realized we had an annual payroll of like three four million dollars, mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, this is a large societal investment in making a public soci you know, public school sociology department. Yeah. You know, you complain about how little people spend on sociology, but on the other hand, when you read the salaries, you're like, this is actually a substantial investment. And you wonder, is it is it is, is the problem really just the, you know the gap between people's ambitions or you know their aspirations? You know, I like the cost saving mindset. I think is an important one. I think it's important for us to understand that you know there, there's not infinite amounts of money, and yeah, what we think isn't much is actually quite a bit. It, but not, but not only that is that a case in the case of the space sciences, and this may be true more generally across lots of different fields, is that they never had to think in those terms of a cost-saving mindset. Yeah. So they were forced to kind of very quickly kind of cludge these things together or improvise. Yeah. But what's super interesting nowadays is when you talk to people on contemporary missions, and I, I followed, for instance, an upcoming mission to Europa. Right, it's a, it's a moon of Jupiter. They've been building this mission for for many, many years outrageously expensive, very complicated. They have many of these kinds of cost-saving mindset or like this, this kind of, this perception that they need to be saving money even, even as they're spending lots of money. But you see a lot of the things that they came up with on Mariner 10 is now just standard practice in hmm. space sciences. A lot of the cost tracking, a lot of using cost to discipline people has become standard practice. It's very standard when you're designing the mission. One of the first things you do after you've, you know, identified your science goals and begin to kind of build out the instrument or whatever is the the third thing you do is you identify the places where you can make cuts if you have to make cuts hmm. right yeah they have this practice called descoping and so you you know before because you know eventually at some point they're going to come to you it's like sorry we gotta we gotta find 10 million dollars somewhere in the budget right. and 
you want to make sure that you're cutting the right thing. So you're not hampering your science or endangering the mission or, you know, like, oops, we broke it. We didn't yeah. realize we couldn't cut. Here. <laughs> and so uh, it's a very common exercise before they're even asked to cut anything that you have to go through and think through for your science or your subsystem or whatever, like, what can we do without, right? Yeah. Knowing full well, at some point, they're going to come to you and be like, sorry, it's, yep. it's, it's your turn. And it's not necessarily anti-discovery. I mean, always it's better to have, I'm sure all things remaining equal, more funding means more ambition. But I guess like it, it, money isn't the only factor that leads to innovation. Sometimes like pluck and- A hundred percent. No, if, if anything, you come out of this study and the things that we've, you know, talking to space scientists, even just more confused about the relationship <laughs> yeah. between money, money and science. They have this term and I, I love it, right? It's maybe like the financialization of everything. They have this idea of science return, uh, right? Like they'll, they'll talk yeah. about missions in terms of expected science return, some kind of like universal science currency or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the relationship between money and science return um, is, is very ambiguous. There, there's lots of people who say, well, look, let's look at the most expensive missions and what have we gotten out of it, right? Yeah. How many papers or how many discoveries or whatever. And then it's like, well, let's look at these smaller missions and what do we get out of it? And sometimes it'll be the same number of papers yeah. or even like Nobel prizes or something. So like, there's no obvious relationship between money and science, at least in the cases that I've, I've studied. Yeah, there, there, might, there might be different kinds of financial realities that enable you to do different kinds of things, but it's not, it's not always clear to me that more money is always better. You yeah, know? you said some of the problems that they ran into Mariner 10, the experts said, yeah, we would have had that another we would have ran into that problem in our better finance missions as well. It's like money doesn't solve everything either. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and money doesn't solve everything in part because, and this is one of the things that we're trying to write up and trying to wrap our heads around. It's very confusing. Right. Money is just one currency yeah. on these missions. And it might not even be the most important one, right? So time is also super important schedule, mm -hmm. especially if, you know, in cases like this, you have to launch by a certain day or the mission doesn't happen. Yeah. So you might spend infinite amounts of money in order to make that schedule, because if you don't make that schedule, then the mission doesn't happen, right? Hmm. Mass is very important. It's, it's hard to put things in orbit, right? Like yeah. basic physics, like it's the rocket uses like the rocket is like 95% fuel, mm -hmm. but like 5% in orbit. Right. So every place you can save like a kilogram or whatever, that might be worth even more than, than money. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they, they go to great lengths there's even these kinds of like internal like mass markets that form on these missions trying to find like, oh, good. You can save a kilogram there. Good. I can use that kilogram. Oh, amazing. Because we're going over. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. amazing. So there, there's all these other kinds of currencies that are, they're trying to optimize in this kind of n-dimensional space. And if they can also save it money at the same time, golden. That, right? But that, that's not always what they always care about. Fascinating. Amazing. Just one more question. Is there a lesson for sociology in here? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like something that we can take from that experience and an insight we can use in managing our own discipline? I, I think it's an, excellent, it's an excellent question. So part of our ambition was to take the tools of economic sociology and introduce them to science and technology studies. Because in the past, I don't know, decade plus, there's been a lot of STS thinking coming into economic sociology, right? Mm -hmm. Donald McKenzie's performativity, yeah. focus on technologies and stuff. Mm -hmm. and so our ambition was to try and Say like, hey, there's things you can learn from the study <laughs> of, of money and, and class and like the credit scores, like all, all the kind of stuff that's been the bread and butter of a lot of economic sociologists and try to apply that same mindset to um, the history of science. Um, but the thing that 
we I've been kind of mindful of this of like where where we can make these contributions to get like my economic sociologist colleagues excited about things if they don't care about space. <sighs> and one of them is is this idea we're trying to articulate called the trade space. And this is um, when missions are being formulated. This is where money is transformed into science and science is transformed into money. Um, so you see when a lot of missions are coming together, and this wasn't so explicitly referenced in the article, but it, it'll be in the book for sure. There's a lot of debates about how, how to do science, right? There's a lot of debates about how to fly these missions. If the goal is to go to Saturn and explore Saturn, you can do it in dozens and dozens, if not thousands of different ways. And so they have these all these kinds of debates back and forth about how to do it. And that's the moment where you see money translated into science saying like, okay, we could have a very big mission or we could have three smaller missions. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can do it now. We can do it 10 years later and 20 years later. Yeah. And you see these kinds of debates going back and forth and there's a lot of multiple stakeholders involved. Sometimes it's funders, sometimes it's politics, sometimes it's the scientists themselves. But that's really like where the rubber meets the road where you can see literally dollars being translated into science and science being translated into dollars. This kind of ongoing negotiation until at the very end of that process, it's called exiting the trade space. Uh, the mission kind of pops out fully formed, right? Right. So we're, yeah, I'm writing this up as a an article. Hopefully, send it off to some like maybe socioeconomic review or something where well, this is applying these economic sociology ideas and then showing how the the history and sociology of science may be relevant to well, economic sociologists. And journal editors, keep your eyes open. <laughs> David Reinecke of Princeton University, thank you very much for joining us today. Joe, thank you. This is this is wonderful. And I got a comment. Your your radio voice, excellent. Oh, thank you. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if you're turning it or not or not. Like, but like, man, like your your voice, like I can I can listen to it all day. Oh, go on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> You have been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Sosh Annex. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our producer is Shant Pangilinan. Music by Leno Ursa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>